Hey guys, this is And The Writer Is, and I'm your host, Ross Golan. I've written with hundreds of writers and artists over the years, and my favorite part of each session is the first hour when we catch up about life and the industry, politics, composition, whatever. If you ask me, songwriters are some of the most worldly and intelligent people I've ever come across. So this is a journey of learning why people write songs, how people write songs, and most importantly, who the people are who write the songs. Now, I'm co-producing this with my friend Joe London, who was nominated for a Grammy earlier this year for Best Country Song. He makes us sound like angels. If you want to listen to the songs we discuss in this podcast, go to Spotify and look up our playlist, And The Writer Is, or go to our website, www.andthewriteris.com. And last thing, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us on whatever your preferred podcast listening site is, whether it's iTunes or it's one of the others. We appreciate that effort and thank you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Today we have Michael Fitzpatrick, the frontman and main writer of the critically acclaimed band Fitz and the Tantrums. I run into Fitz all the time, sometimes in sessions, sometimes at the ice cream parlor near my house. So it's fitting that Fitz is our first frontman on And the Writer Is. But before we get to the interview, I want to say one thing about Fitz. Kudos to him. Because he has found a way to be a frontman who embraces the songwriting community. See, for some reason, it's taboo for frontmen to work with outside writers. I don't understand that. Bands like Maroon 5, Weezer, Linkin Park, or Bon Jovi, Aerosmith, or Kiss, they used to collaborate. Some of them would even take outside songs. And I don't think any of their fans cared one way or another. Now, Fitz is an excellent writer. He could write for other artists, and he has. But I think what's also impressive is that when it comes to his own music, he doesn't mind sharing the wealth with both his band and the outside writing community. Now here are a few notes you can follow along with this interview. He's got a band, obviously. It's the Tantrums. The Tantrums are Noel Skaggs, Joe Carnes, James King, Jeremy Rizumna, and John Wicks. He talks about a few other people in this. He talks about Dave Bassett, an excellent producer who happened to go to my high school about 15 years before I did. He talks about Kevin Griffin. Kevin Griffin is the front man from Better Than Ezra, also a great writer and producer. And he mentions Sam Hollander, a great writer and A&R guy. So without further ado, here is Fitz's interview with And The Writer Is. Welcome to And The Writer Is. I am your host, Ross Golan. Today's artist has penned multiple songs that have topped the alternative rock chart and has headlined the biggest music festivals in the country. He defies industry standards both musically and personally. Not only does he run a world-class band, but he is also successfully raising a family. He's proof that it's never too late to make it as a frontman. And the writer is, the musician I run into most in the streets of Los Angeles, 
Michael Fitzpatrick, a.k.a. Fitz from Fitz and the Tantrums. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, well, you know, it was interesting because we were just talking about um, charity, sort of, you know, the and, and it's obviously really important for you. And, and I was, the first thing I wrote was that how the first time I saw you was at the Art of Elysium event. I've told you this, that my wife was coordinating that event at the time I was courting her and she was like hey come to this event and you were playing it and I I knew you guys I knew of you guys because I've been friends with Lisa Newpoff and Joe Carnes for you know years before that so it was kind of fun to hear like hear you in the environment of charity um, and then starting the conversation today we were already talking about charity and like the value of that i mean how did the art of elysium relationship happen do you do you still work with them is that a common that actually came through lisa who you mentioned our manager and she was uh friends with a lot of the people in art of elysium and they asked us to participate and at that time we had been doing a lot of uh a lot of charity work we had been doing well shoot what's the other one we did uh it's like a get out the vote campaign. We've sure. just done a lot of that stuff, um, you know, and it's always a, a bit of a challenge too because now where we're at in our careers, we get asked to do a lot of that stuff yeah. all over the place, and there's only so much that we can do. So now we have to be a little more selective. About- How do you respond to a charity that you believe in, but you can't really play every show? Um, well, if we can't play a show, we try and figure out another way that we can participate or help them out, whether that's helping promote their cause on our socials or if we can uh, you know, give them merchandise or sign posters and things that they can auction off. We do that a lot. There's a lot of auction stuff for different charities. Sure. I think one of the things that I saw at the Art of Elysium event that we also kind of touched on before we started this was that you perform... You performed there like it was you were headlining Lollapalooza. You know, it's like it was a thing where you don't really have, doesn't seem like you have multiple speeds when it comes to performing. And here now in your career, you're doing these sound checks and whatnot where people come to them um, to see you sound check and that you have to perform. Is there, I mean, that, that seems like a lot of energy all day, every day. You're telling me, my friend. How do you save? I mean, my my th- the thing with being a frontman in a band, and you can explain it to people as much as you want, but it sucks because you have to save your voice constantly. Do you lose your voice? Do you have to treat it with respect? Do you? Do oh you- yeah. I mean, it's a whole thing. You know, people think that being in a rock band and touring is is like uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But honestly, for Noel and myself, it's like perform, sleep, perform, sleep, mm-hmm. perform, sleep, and rest. Um, and on the last record, uh, More Than Just a Dream, when we had the two number ones at Alternative, Out of My League and The Walker, it was we were grinding so hard, doing so much stuff, because when you're a band that's on the radio, you have to... You have to work with the radio station, so that means a lot of going to a radio station, doing an acoustic performance for 30 radio listeners that come into the station, or they go to a local pub and they set up a little thing for their listeners to come down. And we'll do sometimes two to three of those a day, plus meet and greets, plus the show at night, plus interviews. And actually the talking part is is even more strenuous to my voice than the singing part. And we were grinding so hard 
every day, even our days off on the road doing promo stuff, that by the end of it, I developed polyps on my throat and had to uh, have surgery by the end of it. But Wow. When I you, found had to do, out, you had to do vocal rest in the whole thing then. Oh, yeah. But I found out that I had a polyp, and we had our biggest tour we had ever booked about to happen. And uh, it was either cancel our biggest headline tour of the U.S. ever or uh, go out there. And I asked the, the, the ear, nose, and throat doctor, and he's like, well, you've already kind of done the damage if you can get through the the shows then it's more of a pain threshold then yeah just do it so i did it and then uh barely made it through that one crawled through that one and then had to have surgery and then that's like no speaking for two weeks and then no singing for two months and as soon as that two-month mark was finished we got on a plane and flew to south america and did the Lollapalooza run in south america wow did we hold on? So when you do, because uh, vocal rest, I find to be very cathartic. In a way, it's very fr- it's frightening to go through anything like that. But it's the first time I actually listen to somebody else, you know, because yeah. like you can't <laughs> talk, so you're you're like typing out your questions. Or, and you're sitting or there. my my wife got me a little like uh, chalkboard or one of the a magic, whiteboard um, a yeah, whiteboard yeah. magic marker. But the problem is, is I have terrible penmanship. Oh, so so she, I would right. write it and she would be like, what? I can't. Re-. And I would just, <clears throat> it got old real quick. And especially when you have a little kid, the silence thing was actually very disturbing to him. And it made it a lot harder to to not speak at all because he was kind of freaked out by it and wanted to communicate and sing and talk and couldn't do it. So it was definitely a, a tough couple months. How did you, so you were two months silent? Uh, I was a month no, no speaking, singing. no uh, speaking or talking or singing, and then soft speaking, soft spoken voice for the next month, and no singing. And then I literally, like I said, flew to South America and had to go do these big festival shows. And Didn't had you have no to idea. strengthen your? I mean, how, or was I it? Did it I did it. I strengthened it by just having to get out there. But when I first started yeah. singing again, I was like, wow. My muscle is out of yeah. shape. For well, sure. I mean, it's like tearing up your knee and playing pro in, in a pro sport, and then yeah, having and then to go just, back out and play. Yeah, it's like how are you re- supposed to cut, you know, in any sort of pro thing when you're you know your knee just gave out? You know, it's got to be some sort of repetition to make sure that you can do it. Did you have it all looked at, and then the guy said, "No, you're good to go." Yeah, he looked and he said, "It looks healthy." Godspeed. And I literally had to go there, and I started singing in Argentina. And I, my voice was definitely weaker. Do you rely I, more on Noel then in that case, like, or no, is I it, can't, it doesn't I really? I can't really because I'm singing yeah. the the lead melody most of the time. She's harmonizing with me. I mean, there's definitely some parts where she's singing. Uh, did you guys melody, rehearse, but, or did you literally <laughs> just jump out? No, that's the crazy thing. Also about this band is we never rehearse. How? Because they're. Honestly, not to boast, but they're that good of musicians. How did you meet them? Uh, I went to school with James King, our saxophonist, multi-instrumentalist extraordinaire. We at went Cal to, Arts, though? At Cal Arts. Mm-hmm. And, uh, when did I that was... creep you out that I did my research? Continue no. on. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, <laughs> when I was writing those first couple Fits in the Tantrum songs, uh, especially that first record, had a lot more blue-eyed soul to sure. it. Uh, so I called James up, and we started working on those first couple songs, and he's the one that introduced me to Noel. And uh, it was literally... Col- was this in college? No, this was in 2008. 
So you went back to school? No, is that this how was that well after well after college. James and oh, I had oh, I see. kept in touch, and I would bring him in for for sessions every once in a while. Um, and he introduced me to Noel, and we literally uh, put the five phone calls out. Had the rest of the band went to uh, Amp Studio in North Hollywood sure. and had our first rehearsal. <clears throat> and the first song I ever wrote for Fits in the Tantrums was a song called Breaking the Chains of Love. And we walked in. People kind of knew each other. Some people had played together before. And we played that song. And it sounded like we had been playing forever. Yeah. And I walked out of the room, called up the hotel cafe, and booked sure. us a show for the next week. Sure. Walked back. And that was off based off one song. Yeah. Performing. Did that put pressure on having to write the rest of the music? Yeah. Well, everyone was like, uh, we don't have enough songs to play a whole You're set. Like, I was we like, will have enough songs. Well, and that to me has always been my modus operandi is like book a show because nobody wants to have egg on their face. You right. know, it's like a, a great way to crystallize everything. And from that first show, there was just that it's magical little... energy that was around the band. It's a different process when you're in a band. It seems like because so much of the live performance is a big part of it, that when you do, um, you go and you rehearse and you then record your songs versus in the in the pop world, you tend to record the song and then you figure out how to play it. You know, I mean, it's sort well, of a different process. Well, that's honestly the way that we kind of do it as well is usually because I, I'm such a studio person and love making tracks and and writing in that way that most of our songs generally happen in that form which is writing first play later i kind of always have that moment though where you've been playing a song for eight nine months and i wish we could kind of go back and re-record the song because you figured out some stuff you figured out how to make it hit a little harder translate a little bit better but you know it's just the nature you can't you can't write an album play it for six months and then go back and re-record it i mean i guess you could but right not us. Well, certainly not re-record it. I mean, I guess maybe you do that like 30 years later. Yeah. I don't know if anyone actually does that, but that might be a cool Only record. to get out of their master part of it. Right, right, right. <laughs> That's very astute. Do you, um, when, before 2008, before the ban, what were you doing? You were an engineer? Or uh, were you like a producer? Well, or for you were many, what? I mean, there was a good 10, 12 years there where I was in L.A., so many bands, so many. Were the, you always the front man? Uh, in like nine out of the ten bands, I was the front man, and then there was that whole trip hop phase uh, uh-huh. where I had like the girl singer doing like trip hop, sure. and I was doing all the beats and and the music. Was that but, always a thing where you had a a girl singer and you singing? Was no, that just like a natural? That was one of the thing? first time I ever uh, really did that, and I wasn't even singing in that band. It was her. Singing and I was just glad to like not have to be the front man for for once. Sure. But I, you know, ten twelve years of you know eight to ten bands, so many demos, so many like band photo shoots in front of like the downtown courthouse and and just nothing but failure. Were nothing any of them but, good? Um, well, that's the funny thing is that in my journey of trying to become a better songwriter, when I look back at that time, I go, wow. I really sucked at songwriting. You know, you uh it's been a lifelong journey for me to learn. I think there's certain people that just have that God-given talent, especially when it comes to top line to melody and lyric. Um and for me it's been a real 
learning process over time of just slowly figuring out how to become better at it. Um, and there was some good elements to some of those uh, other bands, but it was basically 10 years of nothing but, like, I couldn't get a phone call back. I couldn't get a single person to listen to a demo. Couldn't get a single person to show up at one of the thousand gigs I did at the Viper Room or... Crazy. Or wherever. But you and grew up... You, I mean, I know you were... You were born in France, but you grew up here. Was there? I grew up were, in were you LA. always in bands in junior high, high school? No, the whole I, thing? I mean I went to a high school for the arts, Loxa here for singing. Um, and the th- funny thing was that I was in school. I mean that was the first time for me. I was like this this kid from the valley that went to uh, an expensive private school uh, called Oakwood, and then I left there and went to this public uh, arts high school here in L.A., and for me, that was, like, the first time I was in school with with black people, Mexican, people of different economic backgrounds, sure. and uh, I got to the school, and I was this skinny little white boy with a voice that was cracking, and there was these kids that, w- like, had their R&B thing down. I mean, yeah. it was like... Guys that already were like growing full beards, singing like Luther Vandross at 16. And I was so intimidated by that world because they just had their flow so down, you know, so intimidated. All the runs they could do and stuff. And so I really didn't have a lot of belief in myself as a singer, even though I was a singer. And then I went to school for film, actually, at CalArts, and that's where I met James. And it was only in my senior year of college that I put my first band together, went into the studio at college, when recorded... Is, when is this? <clears throat> oh, this day. is many moons ago, my friend. Uh, this is in the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, and uh, we went into the studio, recorded our first song, I went in, laid down my vocal, came back out into the con- control room, and they pressed play, and I was hooked. Yeah. I literally called my dad, and I said, I know you just paid for four years of film school, but I'm going to go do music because this is my... What did he say to that? It was like, what the fuck? Or did you guys seriously get in an argument about A it? A little bit, because he just spent all this money, you know, putting me through film school, and, it, you know... It didn't seem like uh, trying to be a rock and roll musician was a, a, a worthy endeavor to support yourself. Well, um, he was kind of right for a few years, though. It seems. Oh yeah, I mean, I was, you know, I was selling weed and uh, begging for handouts every six months from my parents just to get by for a good ten years. It's going to be really weird when you explain to your kid that weed was once illegal <laughs> and that that and that you had to like ride your bike to somebody's house or drive and like go and probably play like Nintendo 64 with them while they're buying while they're buying a, you know an eighth of weed <laughs> it's like it's going to be impo- it's like explaining be like our grandparents or great grandparents explaining what it's like in in prohibition to try oh, to I sell know, totally. booze and and now it just seems ridiculous but at the time they were really breaking the law I know it was crazy, but that's what I. Did you ever get in trouble? No, never got in trouble. You know, and and that whole time I was just like, like I said, I couldn't get arrested, couldn't get anybody to pay attention to any of the projects I was doing. And then uh, I uh, wrote this one song that was finally like what I would call a bona fide radio hit. Kind of. It was just this. I had this band that was kind of doing more of that fusion of rock and electronic. Uh 
And finally, this uh, young manager guy said, I'll rep you guys. I'll manage you guys. And that was the first time anybody actually, like, stepped up. Was it something where he saw you perform and was like, I like that song? I can't even remember. I think somebody introduced us and he heard the song and he recognized that it was a hit. And so he instantly took it out. And mind you, this band was, like, barely six months old. What was the band called? It was called Remedy. Okay. And he uh, took the song. And shopped it to all the labels. Sure. And it became this like huge buzz moment for all the labels. Cut to us, we did 10 private showcases in a, in, yeah. in a row at SIR, where it was literally us on a stage, two suits on a couch with their arms crossed. And it was like, this was already 10 years into trying to like make it in the business. Yeah. <clears throat> and it was, for me, it was this moment where I almost snapped because I was like, my destiny is literally like one heartbeat away right there either they're gonna say yes or they're gonna say no right it's a lot of pressure i mean that might be the most it's hard to explain what it's like to put on a show for a bunch of people who are analyzing the performance and not enjoying any of it and you're sitting there it's not even a bunch it's literally two guys yeah sitting on a couch in the most sterile environment do you perform it to two people or are you performing like it's an arena always like an arena always And uh, so we did those 10 showcases, and it was 10 no's in a row. 10, he's too old. Crazy. It's not going to happen. How and old were you at the time? I was 29. Crazy. And everyone was like, he's too old. Forget it. Um, did you look older? No, I looked. Because now I think of you as looking really young. So that's like, did you always look your age? Do you yeah, know what I, mean? I mean, I always, you know. I don't know. I think I looked I looked age appropriate. I looked like sure. a 29-year-old, but that was the craziest thing. They were like he's too old. Um and I was devastated and that was like I said at the end of 10 years of trying and I was like I can't keep doing this. Um so I had this friend this a producer named Did Mid- the band break up then? Yeah, pretty much. It was just like I couldn't keep going. I was so hard. Cuz that's the that's the common thing in LA, I think, is when people end up in a band and and they're close, and they get so close that they never break up. So then they just keep trying to evolve into something. But in, in reality, people tend to invest in potential. Right. So once everyone says no, you know, I'm not saying the right thing to do is to quit, but it's really interesting how many people push through and they try to reinvent themselves, but it's hard to make that first impression again. You know, I mean, it is. And for us, and I was just so just deeply heartbroken by that point that I was like, I got to change something up. I just can't keep hitting a brick wall. And uh, I knew this producer, Mickey P, who I had known for many years, actually back when he was even a DJ. And he did like Beck's Midnight Vultures oh, album. Wow. Uh so a good. lot of great indie records. He was came up with Mario C, Mario Caldado. They were like part of that whole like first round of sampling guys. Yeah. Um, and he later went on to do all of uh, those comedians that sing and. Oh yeah, Flight of the, the Concord. Yes, thank you. Um, and so I knew him, and I called him every day for a year, and he blew me off. And then I finally, like, I think one day he was like, fine, come to my studio just so I would stop bugging him. And I was really good at Pro Tools by that time. Like, I knew my shit. 
And so were when you, I walked you were in, recording all the demos, all your bands. Yeah, I did everything myself. You know, I started with an a, a four track, and then I moved to a VS eight eighty. You know, little digital thing, and then I got my first, you know, digital like computer recording. Um, when my first hard drive was a two gig hard drive that cost a thousand dollars for right. two gigs, and uh, started working for him, and instantly he saw he was like, "Oh, this guy knows what he's doing." So I stuck around with him, and then he started getting a lot of calls to write uh, music for film and advertising, and I was like, "This we're gonna run with." Um, it's kind of a good mix of having gone to school for film and yeah. then doing music for it. And so we started doing a lot of music for advertising, basically hipster jingles. and Anything uh, that, any commercials or something that... Oh, I mean, I did all of pedigree know. dog food for like seven <laughs> years. Amazing. And Were you was getting first... Astra too? Were you singing oh, I was, on it? I mean, I bought my first house because I wrote the Burger King theme song. That's so rad. And I went from a guy that, <laughs> when I say I did not make a penny from music, I did not make a penny. I spent yeah. thousands yeah. of dollars on demos, photos, flyers, blah, 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 for 10 years. And then all of a sudden, I write this one Burger King theme song, which I'm singing on, so that's SAG. So then right. all of a sudden, I come home, and there's literally 400 checks in the mail yeah. a day. Yeah. And I bought my first house and kept doing that music thing. And that was like hard knock of like studio because it was like writing three different songs a day, little vignette, 30 second vignettes, especially for advertising. One would be like a punk pop song. One would be like a bittersweet symphony kind of vibe. One would be orchestral. And then the next day it'd be like Japanese pop song, you know? Yeah. And it was just crank out three pieces of music every day in different styles, and it just grinded. It teaches you the value of a song and also a hook, you know, and, more so than, than a tour or anything. And, and, you know, like, I'm not the best musician in the world. The rest of the guys in the band are by far superior musicians than I am, but uh, I really understand the, the macro picture of it and style and aesthetic. And... Uh, so I did that and finally made uh, a decent living from that and then couldn't let go of wanting to like write some of my mu- own music and started writing those first songs for Fits and the Tantrums and all my peers around me, like my friend Justin from She Wants Revenge and all these other wow. bands were like, this fits, this is your thing. I've never heard you sound more authentic and in the zone. And uh, and this was right after you you wrote the 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 break. What was it? The break the breaking the chains of love. That right, was the right. first song where I finally stopped. I think as a vocalist, stopped trying to imitate on a subconscious level and just sang in what felt like my natural pocket, which is more top of my register belting. Why hadn't you been doing that before? I don't th- think I hadn't had like a full confidence in my own ability like i said when i went to school i think i was very shaped by uh all those r&b singers in high school that just were technically far superior i still to this day can't do like crazy runs that's not my my steez but in that moment i found this music that worked for me and my voice like it all aligned and as soon as that aligned everybody's reaction to my music changed and also that was 10 plus years. That was like 13 years of trying to better myself as a songwriter sure. per se. That song wrote itself in five minutes from start to finish, all the lyrics, melody, and music like that. 
and then got the band together. And from those first shows, we, uh, you know, we got offered Flogging Molly, Maroon 5, Sharon Jones and the Dap Kings, all without a record deal. So I basically, that's right when the economic crash happened. Right. Everyone stopped paying for music for advertising for almost a year. I took my whole entire savings and dumped it into this band because... So you clearly didn't learn your lesson. <laughs> no, <laughs> I was just like, I couldn't let it go. flyers up to a ceiling with but, your savings. But the only reason I was willing to do it at that point was because the I knew what fel- failure and rejection and hitting a brick wall felt like because I had 12 years plus of that experience in the music sure. business. And this just felt cosmically different, like from the first show. Wait, so you finished this song, you were just sort of, you know, here you're doing jingle writing, you're thinking, okay, you know what, I'm going to write Breaking the Chains of Love on the side because I just kind of want to hear this. Or were you actually writing at that point, being like, if I finish a song, I could probably get it licensed in shows? And were you still in that mindset? Or are you. Well, once I wrote that song, I was like, all right, I'm going to try one last time and make uh, an album. Were you actually breaking the chains of love? Was it. uh, Yeah, that whole first album. Well, though, we did an EP that was called Songs for a Breakup Volume One. And then we released the full length that had a lot of those songs on it called uh, Picking Up the Pieces that had Money Grabber on it, which is what sort of broke us. Um, And all of that was a whole breakup with a long-term girlfriend. So all the music sounds really happy and playful and has like a mix of 60s soul and like 80s British Northern soul invasion when all those Brits from the 80s were looking at soul music as a point of reference. So it has soul elements, but from like an 80s POV. Is that by, is that, is that by design? Yeah, for okay. sure. And then, you know, all the beats were basically like chopped up hip hop beats. Sure. So, and then a lot of the melodies weren't like uh, necessarily true to pure, like in the way that Sharon Jones and the Dab Kings did something that was very pure, exact, like no deviation from that time period. Ours was like soul melodies mixed with pop melodies, mixed with a little bit of, you know, new wave melodies all in in a blender kind of together. Do you um, think about lyrically, since obviously a lot of it's about a breakup, when you listen to that album, does it put you in the like emotional state of when you wrote it, or do you not even connect those dots anymore because it became the you know the birth of the band? There's a couple songs on there that still can activate me emotionally, but also what, what I was saying was that that first album, all the music super up tempo, happy. 60s soul music with like the most bitter angry heartbroken lyrics but the melodies are happy as well so there was always this real juxtaposition between the way the music sounded made you want to dance and felt happy but there was this real like bitterness and sadness and anger almost to it and that translated like so many dudes at our shows just like singing their friggin hearts out yeah. like it was that album maybe more than any of our al- other albums like activated people in a a really organic uh, emotional kind of way that you know for us in our evolution because every album we've made has sounded very different is you know there's still some people that are angry that we didn't stick with that original formula now, as we've evolved from do album you to the do album. you feel like you 
should have stuck with any of Hell them? no. Yeah, of course not. Because to me, I was like, part of the thing was that I always knew that that album was like a mix of like hip-hop, 80s music, soul music. <clears throat> but, you know, everyone wants to be so reductive in this in this world. So people were like, retro soul, throwback. Right. And we you just spend, got... You spend months and months writing oh. songs that you care about and then people put a label on it in five minutes. And, yeah, and, and it was just like by the end of the two or three year run of promoting that record, it was just so goddamn sick of people just trying to like almost dismiss us by using this retro. Like, oh, they're having this moment, this band that's sort of like this outlier that doesn't fit into the industry mold. They're not like 19. It's like people almost were using it as this dismissive thing and... You know, there's six of us. There's so much varied, you know, influences. You know, there's a huge uh, hip-hop element. Obviously, Noel comes from, like, singing on a lot of hip-hop records, hooks back in the day. Did she sing hooks of songs that, that we know, or was it more like she was in L.A., just that was the music she was singing? Well, she uh, co-wrote or was part writer on uh, Let's Get It Started. Oh, wow. Uh, and she came up with the peas, uh, but uh, a lot of people like dilated people, and, yeah. uh, and you know, and some of the other two of the guys in the band are like legit jazz guys. Yeah. Um, Jeremy, our keyboardist, was in Macy Gray. Yeah, you know, there's just a lot of different influences. So as we evolved on the second record, I wanted. I wanted to really let all of our influences shine forth. When you say second record, are you saying the full length? Or are you uh, no, about... the uh, More Than Just a Dream album that had Out of My League and The Walker on when, it. When were you signed to Danger Bird? When in the, like, when in the process did you go in? Two years, because what I was saying, we got all these amazing things. Like, open up for Maroon 5, and it was like, amazing. Yeah. But it's going to cost you $25,000 sure. to be able to follow those tour buses all across Were the Were you Eastern with Lisa Seaboard. at this point? Did you have Yeah, she was with us at that point, her and Brian. Um, and uh, I just took my whole entire savings and floated the band. Everybody in the band, you know, those guys were like heavy hitter session guys that were used to being yeah. paid top dollar to tour with bands. With real big bands, yeah. Yeah, sure. De La Soul, all of them. You know, they went out with all those guys and... Um, so those guys took next to nothing, and I paid for us all to go out for two years. And at the end of it, we were all broke. I was about to foreclose on my house, and we went to South by Southwest. And we were on everybody's short list of the five bands you have to see at South by this year. What year was that? That was 2010, maybe? Yeah. Um, and we were just sort of like, this is our last stand. Like, either something's going to happen for us, or we all have to start exploring how else to survive because I'm gonna I'm out of money you guys can't keep getting paid a hundred bucks a day nobody's gonna get nobody's gonna why, make it why do you think they did they went through, through all the that. journey with yeah me? I mean like that's a, because, asking a lot because everybody including myself could feel that we had insane moments happen like who you know we didn't have a record deal Lisa got us on The Morning Becomes Eclectic at KCRW's show. There's a, a tattoo artist visiting from New York. He's driving around in his rental car, hears our songs, flips out, buys our little EP songs for a breakup volume one, flies back to New York. Adam Levine from Maroon 5 happens to be his favorite tattoo artist. Adam comes in to get some work done on his sleeves. 
Here's the music. The guy says, you got to hear this new band. Fits in the tantrums. Crazy. Adam freaks out, starts tweeting about us. Start tweeting back with Adam. A week later, we're playing school night at Bardot here in Hollywood. And he's sitting on the couch as far as you are from me, three feet away. And we're you know, performing, and there's Adam Levine. And a week later, they say, do you want to go out on tour with us? And like I said, I knew what rejection and not being able to get arrested in this business felt like. And it was like... That's not that. That's not yeah. that. This felt like the universe was changing. The music felt right. People were responding to it. There was just this organic energy that was flowing. And that's why everyone was willing to go on that journey. We get two years later of just slogging it out on the road. And at that point where you guys, I mean, you know, it's called fits and the tantrums at that time where you guys, you know, were you guys already sharing everything, you know, like where, like how early on in the process was it like, we're a band. Uh, it definitely was a process because also those guys came from being like session players and hired guns so so equity really had like yeah i mean yeah we gave that you know we figured out a way that everybody in the band could share because that was also the only way that we were going to keep it going too was this every if everybody had some ownership in the band but it you know was definitely a process i think for those guys to understand what that meant for them you know they were so ingrained in them to be you know, hired guns, it would just be about, like, where's my per diem on the road today, you know? And it took them a while to realize that this was, like, a real thing, that they actually had ownership. they're part of it. Yeah, you know, and now three records in, everybody's, you know... What I love, too, is that everybody in this band, there was, besides Jeremy, who had a lot of success with Macy, everyone else kind of never had their moment. Sure. Like, their full-fledged moment. Right. And so it's been this collective experience, even for our managers, like Lisa, like, to have this moment where we all got to succeed together through hard work was yeah. was pretty incredible. And we showed up at South By, out of money, out of time, on our last breath of air, and uh, we played KCRW's like fancy showcase, and we start playing, and there's every president of every label standing there. And by the third song, every one of them left, and I, my heart was just sinking because it took me right back to like those oh, SIR yeah. showcase days where I was like, "Fuck, what's gonna really? This is uh, this is the way it's gonna go down right yeah. now." And our last all show, that touring, all this money, and they come in for three songs and they leave. Yeah, you know, yeah. I mean, typical. And that's South like, by South by Southwest. But if you're not, you know, but keep going. Sorry. And so our last show of that South by was we were playing uh, the Pop Love Foundation, which is Jeff Castellis's uh, foundation to raise money for uh, childhood cancer research. And he, uh, at the time, was one of the owners and ran Danger Bird Records. And uh, Danger Bird repped our music just for licensing to try and find placements, but we weren't on their label. And it was eight bands playing that night, seven of which were Danger Bird artists, and then us. And we did what we do, which is it doesn't matter whether we're playing in like a conference room for... Uh, you know, radio people or in an arena, we play every show like it's an arena. Yeah. Full energy, yeah. no holds barred, like you saw yeah. us at Art of Elysium. And we blew the friggin' roof off that, that night and kind of blew the doors off of every other band. And all the anybody came up to talk to Jeff about was 
us yeah. and our band. And they all think you guys are probably signed, signed to them. To so they're like, wow, congratulations. And on his this wife, thing. Joanne, sort of Big looked band. up and goes, you'd be an idiot not to sign these guys. We get back on a plane to head back to L.A. I'm devastated. I'm like, that's it. They're going to have to, like, you know, stop trying to push this band, you know. Yeah. And uh, he called me up and offered us a record deal. And then we had put out, you know, the full length, picking up the pieces. And Money Grabber just had this, like truly viral moment of its own you know was on uh, number one at triple a radio and was just this very uh amazing moment for us as a band but it was still on this smaller level and then we finally got upstream to uh to, to atlantic Atlanta. uh to uh electra atlantic and uh you know and then was, you know we got off the road and we wrote 40 songs in 30 days for that second record. It was just like... Were you at that point, because Money Grabber starts doing well on a chart, does it now... Did the focus then become, okay, well, now we need to sell records and we need to sell... Go chart positions and does, you, does your focus as a writer start to change or are you at that point thinking this is a vehicle to get people to shows are you core like is oh, any of the writing very, process i was very aware of the power at that point of radio um I, before this band i was one of those people that just believed like everyone else oh terrestrial radio is dead and it was like sure. oh no even on this very small format of triple A radio, which has a maximum weekly audience of three million, you know, which is tiny, uh, especially when you compare it to the hundred and forty million yeah. weekly audience share of top forty radio. But that moment permitted us to go to any city and sell out a four hundred person cap room, you know? Yeah. And it was like, wow, this has power. And for us too, we did the work. We visited every radio station, played every indie record store, did every meet and greet. We didn't say no to a single thing. And so, you know, you Good get a taste you, of some That's six- hard to do. It's really hard. I don't think people recognize how difficult that is. Oh, it's a grind. Uh. Um, and, I, you know, I think you taste that success and you see people singing your songs everywhere you go. And for me, who, like I said, hadn't couldn't get arrested before, that was like... A, a moment where I was like, wow, this is amazing to see people actually connect with your music. So, you know, on the second record, I was like, all right, we're going to take some chances. We're going to, we're not going to make the same retro soul record. We're going to bring in all these other influences, which one of my biggest is 80s new wave. Yeah. Um, And we wrote, like I said, 40 songs in 30 days, this insane output. Were were like the Walker and the Walker and, and, and out of my league where they were they were all part of that yeah that forty songs. Did you know in those forty songs these two are going to be life changing? Uh yeah, actually Noel brought the original uh, incarnation of Out of My League uh, to one of those uh, first sessions. She wrote it and on, on a yeah. She did it on a little like Garage Band like sure. with a bad drum Apple loop yeah. and stuff and. Funny thing was she was in her mind writing it for like Cold War kids or something. Sure. And she sang like in a male voice with a British accent, yeah. which first of all, Noel trying to do a right. British accent. That's pretty awesome. funny. <laughs> and she played it for me thinking it wasn't even for us. And I was like, this, this is the song for us that's going to break us at alternative radio. Yeah. And she was like, really? I was like, yes. And we took was the that song. First? I can't remember. Was that first or was that? Yeah. Oh, awesome. And, uh, and I just knew that that song was going to break us at alternative. To me, it was like had everything. It felt 
retro, new wavy, but modern all at the same time. And the hooks were undeniable in it. And so we took that song and changed some chords around, wrote a bridge, and just kept trying to like infuse that thing with more uh, steroids. How did you, how did you <clears throat> guys write it? Did you guys write it? I mean, I know she came in with the idea, but you know, when you guys are writing 40 songs, are you... Is everyone coming in with different ideas? Is it sort of jamming through and being like, ah, oh, that's a sick chord change. Let's write over that. Do you take melodies home? Like, it's how almost do you write never out? jamming. We tried to jam, but what I find is that six people in a room, it's like wrangling cats. Right. It's very difficult. writing. In it's writing, very right. difficult. And sometimes, you know, for better or worse, that can be a difficult process, especially navigating with a band of six people because I'm also uh, somebody that has... You know, I mean, I'm sure people would call me a control freak in my own right, but I also have my own vision for where I want things to go. And when there's six people all trying to like steer the ship at the same time, it's harder for me to like coalesce and get the compass pointed in the right direction. So, you know, a lot of the songs started with me. And most of the time when I write, I'm. I love being in the studio. I love the idea that I can wake up in the morning, put together a beat, play some chords, really set a mood and a texture so much by even the single sound of like what the snare sounds like and the piano or the organ or a synth patch or whatever. And then I'll just start doing, I think, similar to what you do, which is I like just sort of off-the-cuff freestyle over it, you know, and have this moment where... Uh, sort of and feel like it's almost like this primal tapping into what you are feeling emotionally about this music at right. the time throwing out nonsensical words what words sort of naturally sort of pop out sure. what combination of syllables you know what sounds like it flows and what sort of meaning kind of might be under the surface subconsciously in you that comes out and build it like that. And, you know, and then the guys would bring some ideas and Noel and I would sit there and try and, uh, and, and write lyrics and melody over them. And sometimes they would work and sometimes they wouldn't. I'm a big believer in too, is like, I'm, I'm so f afraid of failure. And also I don't believe that you shit gold every time. Right. So I'm a numbers guy. Like, I want to write, 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 sure. write, because you're not going to win every time. And you're lucky if one out of every 10 songs is like truly special. Yeah, you're, you're, you know? you're at a really good percentage at that rate. Right. And yeah. hopefully as you get better, yeah. you know, maybe that percentage gets a little higher. But I think that's been one of my greatest assets is not to ever settle. Um, and in working with other artists as well and stuff, what I found is that there's a lot of people, not so much in the top line world, uh, but in the artist world where they don't understand the idea of revision or rewriting, uh, where they sort of are married to their first idea. They think every idea they make is great. And to me, like, all I have is my own intuition sure. when it comes to songwriting. You know, a perfect example is Money Grabber. When we wrote it, we were playing it out on the road. I could just tell this song just felt special. But the bridge never hit the mark. And we wrote four different bridges till we got to the one that just felt like it didn't take the energy down. It didn't stay like parallel. It went from nine to ten, sure. you know. And, and really to me, like, 
elevated the song and sealed the deal on that song being to me i i think that song is going to stand the test of time and be a classic maybe more than almost any other song we've ever done you know hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you did, um, you know, the, I think the Walker and Automatically, because they were licensed so much, you know, is there was there a correlation in your head? Do you think because of your history of having done songs for commercials and and jingles that you started connecting the dots that maybe that's why your songs are licensed? I mean, I can't think of that many bands that have you know adding hand clap and whatnot. I can't think of many bands that have that much success at licensing. Do you think there's any relationship between your I history mean, and that? There's got to be. Or is be. it just coin- is it a coincidence? No, I don't think it's totally coincidence. I mean, I spent a lot of time in that world. Um, and to me, like, I, uh, I love catchy music. Like, I'm obsessed right. with what is that thing that just gets in your friggin' ear. It's an earworm. Yeah. And it won't leave. And uh, I think that I've always been really good. You know, I have to work at melody and always making it better. And, you know... Usually in a song, I can write one part like right out the gate that's just like a, a home yeah. run. For but me to do like parts. a verse, pre-chorus, post-chorus, <laughs> yeah. and the bridge, like it, it's hard. And I have to keep working and revising and revising. But when it comes to the music or especially like the little melodic hook, you know, it's like I did the whistles for the walker. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my God, this is the most annoyingly catchy thing yeah in the world you know and also you know it gets stuck in my head constantly still it's very frustrating i'm not happy with you (laughs) but it's cool and and then you know i like i said i spent a lot of time in advertising and uh, you know it wasn't like i was making a decision to do something on purpose in that way but it's just you could tell it would work yeah i was like this song well it's like my favorite thing i was like this song's gonna license like a motherfucker When when we did the uh, bridge for my house and Florida says, um, in the middle of the bridge he goes home run slam dunk touchdown pass and the songs has nothing to do with sports, you know it's, it's about not going out, you know that's what it's about and he goes and he does it and he's like he just turned to us he goes trust me and he says mi casa es su casa trust me he just starts throwing in all these things, the whole bridge is just like gives a subtle hint at all the things it could be licensed for. Right. And, you know, the people who are really aware of that world are really smart because they find a way to, they realize um, 
you know, the multiple formats and how to break a song and how valuable, you know, those little quippy things are, or just a really good whistle and all that stuff. One question I had was if you have, in your world of alternative rock, a lot of those writers don't even know about the writing community. They learn about it maybe later. But here you're talking about top liners and producers and and you know you're in the writing game. How did you get introduced to that coming from being in a band? Well, I think on the second record on the More Than Just a Dream, we uh you know, like the first record I co-wrote with my mentor, this guy Chris Seafried. Um, East Coast guy, and he's really the guy that encouraged me to follow my my dreams, to believe in me, encouraged me vocally to sing in my style. Um, so I've always been about collaboration, and I always, you know, like I can write a song from start to finish on my own, but I like uh, I love collaborating, and I love to get a song done faster than slower right um and uh so on the second record you know uh you know the some of the guys in the band helped on some of the songs like the walker it was basically the song was the whistles and ooh crazy is what they think about me and i had this lyric at the top and that melody and then we didn't have anything else and we couldn't figure out what the chorus was james from our band wrote the chords to the chorus and then noel came up with the oh here we go yeah um and so we did that collaborated with some of the guys in the band and then we worked with dave bassett on uh, a couple tracks on the record um you know dave bassett and i went to high school oh you did the same high school he's 10 years older or whatever but in the middle of somewhere between chicago and milwaukee for there to be a high school to have multiple people in the Songwriting community is unusual. Anyway, keep going. And then we had a song <laughs> on, the, on the record, on the second record called Break the Walls. Yeah. Oh. And um, I had this song. I knew the chorus was great. The music, I was so proud of all the production because I did m- a majority of that stuff at home. Yeah. And I couldn't crack the code on the verse. And uh, I was friends with Sia at the time. And I said to Sia, I said, I know, look, I know you're writing for everybody, you know, you're hanging with Katie Perry, but can you do me a solid and come help me with this, this track? And she walked in and wrote the, the verse melody to that song in 30 seconds. And to this day, I'll say that Sia's the best top liner I've ever worked with. It's amazing because when you talk about the editing and the revision and whatnot, there's... Um, There's very few people you know, that can write out the gate. Let me just give you an example. That day, she's like, she's like, did that, wrote sure. that, uh, the verse for that, and then we finally, the song was finally finished. And she's like, you got anything else? And I literally had like three tracks laying around that I was just messing with. You know, and see if she just comes in a laptop, press record. She's never heard the song before. Yeah. You play her the track, and she's just singing sort of, under her breath or out loud at different points, like a bunch of different ideas, walks out of the room, you hear her typing for 10 minutes, she comes back in and she's got, you know, intro hook, verse, pre-chorus, chorus, post-chorus hook, post-post-chorus hook, bridge, and like an amazingly well-crafted high-concept lyric. And she did that three times in a row in 30 minutes. And I was like, 
I'm the worst songwriter in the world. You, but that's not how it really. Because there was a there's a, a an, another podcast, um, a Mal- Malcolm Gladwell's, and he talks okay. about genius, and he talks about Picasso and Cezanne, and references those two where. You know, the Sia's, and we talked about Julia Michaels earlier. You know, some of these people where they're so prolific and they're so good so quickly, and they, they can have this incredible uh, catalog of just genius copyrights. And then there's the, the, the Cezanne's where he never even signed his name to something until later because he would see a painting on a wall. 40 years after he's done with it, take it down and start changing it. Right. You know, after he sold it to the person, he'd come back and see it and say, you know what, that should have been here. That should have been there. And the idea that what genius is is not necessarily um, – that is – see, as that's a genius quality. But by being patient and, and over time developing a craft and doing that kind of writing is is – is an equal but totally different form of genius. And Absolutely. It's, like, it's in awe when you're around these, you know, the Benny Blancos. They're really young, just brilliant. They, they're they so prolific. Everything they touch seems to be magical, you know. And then there's the guys who grind and grind and grind, and a lot of what they do is brilliant. It just takes so much time. You know, yeah. the writing process changes so well, much. Well, and that was the thing, too, was like watching her was – unbelievable but on that second record on more than just a dream we wrote it so fast we were on an indie budget at that point because we hadn't upstreamed to a lecture yet you know we wrote those songs 40 songs 30 days a week of pre-pro three weeks of recording album done and it was like oh well there was no time for reflection i was like these choices better be right um, you know, and on the last record, our uh, latest record with a uh, hand clap on it, self-titled, you know, I was like, oh, this is going to be the same thing again. 40 songs, 30 days, boom, done. And this was not that case. This was a year-long process sure. to get the record done because also more success, more expectation, you know. Is that, what's the pressure now? I mean, before the it was, pressure is, I want one of those guys who's folding their arms to sign me. Now you're three albums into it. You headline a bunch of shows. You know you're you're booked up. You've had a lot of success. Where what's the pressure now? What's the what's is the to next keep step? writing music that that people relate to and connect with. You know, and and I feel like you know like on that second record, we definitely had some little mini co-write moments with people. But I also you know like I'm a huge lover of Top Forty. Like that's. You know, I'm not a guy that's, like, listening to, like, weird indie rock. Like, I love melody. Yeah. Um, And I love tracks. And I think that there's never been a more interesting time in pop music, in top 40 music, than now. You have the most amazing, talented producers, track makers, top liners that are all you know, contributing. And what I've found too is that for better or worse, you know, with the sort of new movement of like the super collective of what pop songwriting, because now, I mean, it's rare to have a top 40 song that's not written by three to seven people. Right. You know? Um, 
And what that does is you're bringing in all these different talents. You know, everybody's really talented at what sure. they do. And what I love about the top line world is people are all about let's make the song better. Let's revise. Going back to that idea yeah. that like sometimes artists just they think every idea they do is good and they're not willing to be critical. And I've even had arguments with Noel and our band where I'm like, we are going to save as the version yeah. of the song. We're right. going to throw that verse away and we're going to try and write a new one. Yeah. If we don't top it, we're going to go back. And it would be a battle sometimes to get her to like, revise. you know, revise that. And then finally, once she got on board, you know, it was like, okay. And that's the way you make a song better. Sure. And whenever I work with top liners, because I try and also whenever I'm not on the road is try and write for other people and stuff. I love working with top liners because they're like, Oh, you're not feeling the verse? Let's let's do it again. Let's make right. it better. Let's do it. We've had that experience, you and I, writing yeah. together. It's like, that is an amazing thing. And pop music now is so goddamn good because of right. that collective of however many Swedish people you have <laughs> in the room, the Ross Golan, the Sia, the, the whoever, the yeah. hottest young DJ track guy. Like, you've got so much mm-hmm. talent. And the songs are oscillating now at the highest level. Well, this where is that like, pre-1964 kind of, it's before albums were a thing where, you know, well, albums were a thing, but before bands were really creating albums and you have the Brill Building churning out yeah. records that where the songs really are the focus. And sometimes there was a B-side, but for the most part, it was about one song at a time and the competition to make when you're talking about 40 songs on you know per genre that's it you know and you're talking television and you have whatever 250 channels of 24/7 material and you're thinking of radio and you're like well, if you're looking at alternative rock right now there are 40 songs that are on that top 40 that's it they don't just leave every week so for you to weasel your way in and weasel your way up the chart, to do that with Hot AC, same thing, to do that with Pop, 40, yeah. and going through all that and just trying to weasel your way into those top 40 and being patient. I mean, how is it, as, as an artist, I've always wondered when something like Hand Clap, which has now been out for probably four or five months. Oh, yeah, it came out in March, so yeah. it's been well up. Oh, yeah, well over that. So then, it, and now it's it's climbing now faster and faster because it picks up steam yeah you know it how do you have the patience to watch that i mean oh i mean it's it's tough you know i mean it's you know for me on this record i you know going back to this idea of like these collectives of songwriters and how to me the level of craftsmanship that's going into these songs is mind-blowing when you have that many brilliant people working in a room together the output these songs are so undeniable that i feel like it's really hard as a artist to just sit there with a guitar or piano and write a song that's going to compete right in a certain way and those writers are writing a song every day or so so it's like that's what they do while you're on tour so i mean the val- I mean, I guess I'm biased because I'm a songwriter, but I, I think the value that a songwriter brings in a session, it, it's not really to write their song, it's to help facilitate the artist. Yeah, and so yeah. that's why for this record, we I did more co- co-writes than I've ever done. Every song on the record is a co-write yeah. uh, with other people. Um, and It's interesting because it was self-titled too. 
you know, that that that's kind of an honor to be on an album where the artist calls it, a, self-titles the album, and yet you co-write with a lot of people on the outside. You know, it says, it even brings in sort of more trust into the community to be to be able to say that by co-writing with you, I feel like it's showing off what we are. Yeah. You know, in a way. Well, and I also, you know, I think we also got, part of the reason why we had so much writer's block and such a hard time on this last record too was that, we were just exhausted because by that time we're like talking about six years on the road for most of the year, so many shows, and tour life, if people haven't done it, is the weirdest lifestyle of all. You're never in a city for more than 17 hours and then you're on to the next place. Everything in your world is changing every single day except for you and the band and your crew. And that's a very disconnected sort of... You can really be detached from your yourself almost in a way. You're floating a lot. Of, I mean, the number of times I've been driving in a van from point A to point B and I'm looking at a downtown skyline and I'm like, I don't know where I am today. Yeah. And it takes me like a good five minutes to be like, oh, I'm in Nashville today. Okay, right. right. And to get back home... <clears throat> find ourselves in this writer's block moment, not feeling inspired by almost anything I was hearing, you know, wanting the new record to go in yet another forward leap of direction, but not sure what that was going to look like. Working with those outside songwriters was almost like therapy sessions. Oh, yeah. You know, where it was like, sit down and be like, so what's going on with you, Fitz? And I'd be like, well, what is going on with I haven't even had a moment to think. And I'm like, well, you know had a baby, got married, you know, have had all this success. And with that success is like, also there's a whole flip side to that success is that most of my relationships around me have changed as a result. Uh, and, and negatively or positively? Uh, or? Not necessarily negative, but just my relationship to that sort of circle of acquaintance people that I've known around yeah. my life is different now. Yeah. You know, I mean, and of course we're in L.A., an industry town, and it's like, look, in my head there's that list of people that wouldn't talk to me before fits in the tantrums, and now they're all up in my grow, and I'm like, mm-hmm, you to the it's side. Hard not, it's hard not it's to. It's you to the yeah. side. You wouldn't talk to me, and now that I'm in a successful band, you're like, want to try and act like we've been we've known each other for forever. And then there's just friends and acquaintances that now that I see them, all they want to be is like, Congrats, it's so amazing, all the success. And I'm a very grateful, humble person for all the success that we've had. Everybody in the band is, and that's been part of our trademark of why people love working with us. It um, helps you guys were, I mean, for lack of a better word, it helps when you're a failure for years and then yeah. you earn this yeah. sort of success. It, sort of, it makes you recognize how special that moment really is. For no sure. Doubt. But then, you know, like there's moments where it's a job and there's moments where like I miss my friggin' kid and my wife and I'm tired of being on the road and not feeling like I'm connected to like reality almost sometimes. And it's not always fun, even though this is my exact dream that came true. Sure. But then you feel like you have a responsibility to always feel exuberantly grateful and happy about it. And some days I'm not happy and then people will come and be like, congratulations. And that's the day that I'm just feeling low and a little down and 
don't know sometimes why I'm traveling 300 days out of the year or whatever. And I have to muster like one more time energy to be like, yeah, thanks. You know, like this is awesome. I know it's hard to complain when, when everyone knows that everything's like, you know, in quotes, but you know, life well. still goes yeah. on. You know, it's like even with those successes, I'm sure you know, as you well know, you've been having like the year of years as as a songwriter, and you busted your ass. And when we first met, it was like before any of this shit yeah. was going on, yeah. and that you still have your good days and your bad days, and life still happens on life's terms, yeah. and. Being also a front person of the band, there's a lot of interviews, radio liners, all this stuff where I have to like, it's always an uh, an output of energy. And sometimes I, you know, I don't have it in me. Uh, so it's just been a trip, this journey of like how to navigate all that stuff. And so working with these outside songwriters was just these beautiful moments of people like really helping pull these stories. And to me, that's why this record ended up being a really deeply emotional record too. You know, it's a pop record for sure. But to me, the content, the meaning of what's behind this record is... There's a lot of deeply personal stuff, you know, that happened as a result of of the last couple of years. How much of your relationship? I mean, I think my wife has a lot to do with my songwriting in in so many facets. Do you bring me? I, I know your studio is in your house, but do you bring music into your relationship regularly, or is it something you have to separate? Oh uh, no, I uh, my do wife they Kaylee. You? Uh, my wife Kaylee is one of my. Tr- most trusted advisors because yeah. she's musical she can sing but she's not a musician she's not in the business right but she's i trust her ear more than almost anybody yeah. because she's really intuitive and like she'll listen to the song and she'll be like it's okay i'll be like what you know i just friggin this maybe is I awesome should, maybe i'll send her the melody <laughs> from now on <laughs> and, she, <laughs> and she's like you know she's like i'm not really feeling it or she'll yeah. listen to song. she'll be like what something's hurting my ear that's annoying me right now and i'll be like like it is a little brittle you know yeah. the, oh there is oh that sound has like that like pure something she knows she picked me up off the ground. I mean, like I said, this album took a year to make and those first five months was nothing but hitting a brick wall. Noel and I were bashing heads. She wasn't feeling it. I wasn't feeling it. You know, it was dark and I was going to bed pretty much in tears every night because I felt like I couldn't pull out a single thing that I felt excited about. And she watched me go through that journey every day you know, and I had made friends with this guy, Sam Hollander. Yeah, of course. Um, who uh, I met through Kevin Griffin uh, from Better Than Ezra. And uh, we did a songwriting session. And it was like when I met Sam, it was like my brother from another. We just clicked. We had like every single like similar reference. We're almost the same age. We like had all of those key 80s musical influences together. And we just connected. Um, so I asked him one day, I said, can we get together and try and, and write a song for Fits in the Tantrums? And that was at about the fifth month mark. And maybe part of my own demise was that I was trying to write a hit, you know, uh, those first five months. Or I just had such heavy expectations on myself to create something that I was excited, that gave me like a musical heart on that oh, I was yeah. just pumped on. And so when I walked into his... Uh, studio five months in just feeling very 
unconfident about my own ability at that time and just depleted. I said, you know what? We're going to write a song in 15 minutes. No thought. I'm not going to think he had his studio aid there. They had a keyboard. And I'd be like, give me some drum sounds. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, that. I like that kick. More, more. Snare, yeah. snare. Okay. And I did a beat real quick. And then I was like, give me some keyboard sounds. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, that one right there, that like cheesy horn sound. And I did. I was like, that's like it's the great. most um, annoying bar mitzvah. Yeah. yeah. Like catchy little hook (laughs) so i laid that down and then sam's an amazing lyricist which is i'm a great co-writer of lyrics like i love to write every fourth line or make sure that that right balance of like syllables to consonants like that it's always something that sings well yeah you know that and to me that's so amazing you change one word and how much a line can go from being just like a throwaway line or a line that's in transition to becoming kind of a hook in of itself in that way that you choose those words that cut or taking uh, you know a top liner's fourth line and saying like okay you said that um but let's try and say it in a little more fucked up kind of left yeah. of center way and taking their line and taking my weird acid brain and being like, okay, let's say like this. And they're like, oh, that's that's yeah. cool. That's different. And so him and I just banged out those lyrics and that song was written in 15 minutes. And I knew as soon as we we were writing it, I was like, this is the song. You know, and the funny thing is that I sent it to our A&R guy there at the time and he was like, I don't get it. Yeah, of course. And I was like, you're going to get it. This is this this is our song because to me also you know I didn't want to just be an alternative band I right. want a song you know like to me like I want to reach as many people with our music and I know the way that we're going to do that is by crossing to these bigger formats at, at radio um I this- heard I've heard that song in uh a couple stadiums now you know, um, it's a big NFL cheerleader song. They there. all have routines to it now. But it's great. I mean, like you hear it, you hear it, and you hear to see, look around, and everyone around. He's like, I saw this couple in front of me at maybe it was a Rams game or it was a Kings game. I mean, I've seen it in a couple places where like this cute couple they looked at each other and they started clapping with the hand clap thing, and you're you're sitting there and you're like, that's those are those moments where you smile because you you know my my friends are creating a moment for this couple like they have some inside joke attached or not inside joke they love that song enough that they learn it together you know i mean that's like that's such a compliment it's pretty crazy that you know you can write a song in a day that becomes you know a a part of all these people's lives yeah and you know like that thing was we're talking about very uh, early on in the conversation is you don't strike gold every time. So it's like that song wrote itself in 15 minutes, but there was five me- five months of blood, sweat, and true tears that like arrived, you know. So I kind of look at that whole collective sure. time spent to get to that moment where you mean the song... of the writing or yeah. the release? Yeah, yeah. Because, no, it was like because literally then you get into the production of it and all the other five, things. Are... Five months of just trying to like write a song and not being able to and then finally getting to that song that oh, writes see, itself right. in 15 yeah. minutes. It was like sort of like I was due by that time. Like I had ne- never given up even though every day I felt like I was hitting a brick wall and it was like finally something happened. And once that song was written and that take on there is my scratch vocal take 
because I was so one elated. My hit meter, my personal instinctual hit meter was off the charts when we wrote Hand Clap. And I was so friggin' relieved to know that we finally had the song that I could never capture that energy ever again. And no that's doubt. why that, that take is the scratch vocal take that's on the fi- finished product. Thank you for coming. Thank you for doing Thanks this. Thanks for hanging. And I, I think uh, if there's one thing that I can say is that it's so rare to meet somebody who's willing to have that tenacity and the patience to see their artistic career come to fruition. And the fact that you've done it while taking care of your fan base, like what will entertain them? As a writer, that's all that matters to me is to make sure that it's about entertaining them and it's not always about entertaining myself. Even when it's about myself, it's still that it'll eventually be their song. You see them yeah. clapping in a stadium. You see them. It's because it's no longer yours. It's their song. Well, and that's the thing I realized very early on is that you can have one meaning for a song and then people take it on and they make it their own and it's how it resonates with them. And like the walker, first line, crazy is what they think about me. Ain't gonna stop because they tell me so. I had no idea that just writing that lyric, that's part of the reason why that song succeeded. Because it's like, it basically is a call to arms to every inner freak and every single person. And whether you're the jock or the nerd, everybody feels like a freak kind of. And that connected for people. Yeah. And that's why that song worked. You know, it's like, can't think that, but it's like you write it for one reason and then people just use it as their own tool for however they want to interpret it. You yeah, know? absolutely. It doesn't matter how, what your objective is. Ultimately, like, there's that sort of consumption of it of their own part and how they feel. Sure. 100%. Well, thank you. And I will send you an email later with some more melodies for you. Yes. Oh, and P.S. My my wife loves the melodies. All right. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of And The Writer Is. If you want to hear music from this songwriter I just interviewed, be sure to check out our Spotify playlist or visit our website at andthewriteris.com. If you like what we're doing, please subscribe to us on iTunes. You can also like us on Facebook and Twitter. And the Writer Is is produced by Joe London, edited by Miles Bergsma, and published by Big Deal Music. A special thanks to Jeff Sparger, David Silberstein from Mega House Music, and Michael White. Here's a sneak peek of next week's And the Writer Is. I think I have probably, in some ways, a terrible reputation, in some ways a great reputation for, you know, telling someone at some point, like, you probably hit the wall on this. How about bringing in another producer to finish it? And it's, oh, yeah. it's sort of insulting to some people, right. and other people love it. They, like, you know, um, realize they want the final product, you know, and, right. and ultimately, a, you know, the traditional producer is is somebody who gets something all the way to the finish line, right? Um, and uh, and sometimes that means recognizing, you know, the the players on the team that it needs, you know, the one position is being unfulfilled and needs to come in. Until next time, this is Ross Golan. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.